Is everyone warm enough? Okay. <laughs> Are you too warm? <laughs> For me, it is. That's, that's confusing. Yeah. All right, the book of Acts. Now, we are going to start a dispensational study of the book of Acts. And we want to understand the early church, and we want to understand the implications of this for our lives today and for what the Lord's doing today in the church. Right away, the question would come up, what is dispensational? What does that mean? Well, hold your place there and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. What is dispensational? It's the way to study the Bible. The Bible tells us how to study it, which shouldn't surprise us, right? The Bible is its own dictionary. The Bible is its own commentary. And uh, the Bible tells us how to study it in various places, but this is the main one. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. To rightly divide means to make right divisions. Everyone is a dispensationalist to some extent because they will make the division between the Old Testament and the New Testament, as we've talked about. The law and grace, although grace is throughout the entire Bible, but the Old Testament law, we're not under that under test, Old Testament law. We're under grace. So you have to make a distinction there. So what a dispensation does is it shows us that God deals with people differently at different times and in different situations. God dealt differently with the Jews under the Old Testament system. Okay, God dealt differently with men before the law came. And then after the law came, you had the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical dietary restrictions. Um, those things changed. So God deals with men differently at different times. So that's what we're going to study in the book of Acts. You've got to get that. You've got to get that. I'm so thankful I'm not under Old Testament Levitical dietary restrictions. Um, Beth and I, we went through... Eight hours, well, it would have been six hours of training and an hour of lunch and then a whole bunch of things going on before and after that. Somehow it took us 15 hours by the time we got up to the time we got back home on uh, Friday, 15-hour day. But we got that six hours of training, and the man who trained us was a Catholic and uh a practicing Catholic, not just a nominal one, at least a practicing Catholic, and it was Friday, right? So if you know where I'm going with this, well, it was a potluck lunch. Everybody was supposed to bring something. Just an aside, this one lady brought this great big crock pot with this breakfast, amazing breakfast combination in there. I don't know what she did to this thing. I could have seriously, like, just... Forget about any shame or anything like that and just sit there and eat that for an hour. It was so good. But I had a big helping of it. And you know what it had in it? Sausage. Yeah, you couldn't eat in that under the Levitical priesthood. And the, and the Catholic instructor, he forgot what day it was. So he didn't want to be impolite, and he ate a little bit of everything that was in there. And then he realized, ah, I'm supposed to eat fish today and not supposed to eat meat. 
But I'm so glad I'm not under any dietary restrictions, and none of that should be put on me. You know, no, no fish on Friday, nothing like that. So there are differences in the way that God deals with people at different times. Uh, the men, boy, I'd be in trouble uh, because the men had to wear a beard, and, and I can't wear a beard. It's just not going to happen. It'd look weird. Uh, so uh, unless I got one tattooed on, like some lady get their eyebrows tattooed on, I could get a beard tattooed on. But um, So there's differences. So we're looking at a dispensational study. How was God changing the way that he was dealing with people in the book of Acts? And he is. That's what we need to see. So what you have in the book of Acts is you have a transitional book, a transitional book. There's three books like that in your Bible that you really need to watch out for. The book of Matthew. The book of Matthew is transitioning from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's transitioning from the Old Testament law now to the gospel and what God was going to do there. The book of Acts. The book of Acts is transitioning from the Lord dealing with the Jews primarily to dealing primarily with the Gentiles. It's a transitional book. The book of Hebrews is a transitional book. It's God going from the church age to the tribulation. So in the book of Hebrews, you'll find things that you cannot put on us doctrinally in the church age. And people will get all messed up. If you're going to get messed up in your Bible, you're going to get messed up in the book of Matthew you're going to get messed up in the book of Acts, or you're going to get messed up in the book of Hebrews. One of those three places. Because they're transitional books, and you can't miss that. We're going to study it. We're going to talk a whole lot about it. So that's just an up, up front uh, kind of a, a glossary look at what it means to be dispensational. Basically, if you're not dispensational in your study of the Bible, you're going to make a mess of the thing. I like salad. Do you like salad? But in salad, you mix up a whole bunch of stuff together. And it's fun to watch people who have never eaten a salad. I was sitting with a little boy yesterday at that reception, and he had never eaten salad like this or at all. And there were little round purple things. What on earth is that? And I had to tell him that's, that's onions. And then there's these little things that look like I can handle that, these little breaded things. And I said, that's croutons. I said, what's that? What's a crouton? And uh, he didn't know you're supposed to put salad dressing on it and all this kind of stuff. And uh, it was kind of fun to watch that. But, you know, in a salad, you just mix a whole bunch of stuff up together, toss it, throw some salad dressing on there, and it's good. And it's good for your innards, uh, which a little boy doesn't have to worry about. So, but, you know, with your Bible doctrine and your study of the word of God you can't just throw it in there and mix it all up like a salad you can't do that or like one other preacher says yes right that's what a lot of people do yes yes and and you'll get you'll get yourself into a mess in the book of Acts as we're going to see if you don't rightly divide and make right divisions and see what belongs to the Jews what belongs to the church, and how are things transitioning and changing there. Now, this book covers approximately 40 years of history 
from the ascension of Christ to the Apostle Paul's martyrdom. Chapters 1 through 12, if you'll kind of look at that and put 1 through 12 in one of your hands. Chapters 1 through 12 in your Bible, that's Peter and his, uh, his ministry. He's, he's the main character there. And that's uh, going out of the center of Jerusalem and it's to the Jews. So the center of God's dealings is that first church, the main church in Jerusalem. But after chapter 12, Jerusalem is no longer the main church. Because from chapter 13 all the way to chapter 28, from chapter 13 all the way to 28, if you can get that in your, in your right hand, I just like to have my hands in the Bible and be turning pages when I come to church, you know. Uh, this is Paul in Antioch from 13 to 18. Paul is the main character in view that God's using, and Antioch is the center that God is sending the gospel out of. It's a missionary church. And that is the main church in the rest of the book of Acts. And that's where God sends the gospel out, and the gospel is spread throughout all the known world. In this book, the gospel goes from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, and that is all of the known world. The gospel makes it, you know, all around. So now uh, we'll take a look at verse 1, and we're going to study each verse in this Bible in this book of the Bible, uh, this book, as we've said already, has 28 chapters. There's 1,007 verses. We're going to study each one, not in detail, but there's 24,245 words. So here we go. Verse 1, the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Let's go ahead and just finish out that sentence. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the children of God. That's a long sentence, isn't it? Verse 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye heard of me. All right, in verse 1, we're told, this former, the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus. And that's referring to Luke's gospel. If you look at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he wrote the gospel to the same person as he's now writing his church history. This is Luke, the beloved physician. He's the author. And in Luke chapter 1 and verse 1, watch how he starts out his gospel. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. So Theophilus is a real person, and Luke wrote his gospel to this man, Theophilus, which some believe was Luke's master. 
and they have a pretty compelling case for it. Luke was a doctor. Luke was a very intelligent man. The people who study these ancient dead languages, such as Greek, they study these languages and they say he wrote in a fine Greek language and vocabulary. He was an intelligent man, you can tell. And you would have to be an intelligent man to be a doctor. But back in those days, a doctor was a servant. They were a slave, like an indentured slave. A wealthy man would have a doctor that belonged to him, and he would have other servants. And so it may be, and it, it would make sense, that Luke belonged to Theophilus, and Luke came to Christ and wanted his master to know Christ and to be saved too. And I'll tell you this, if Luke would go to all that trouble, now he's an intelligent man, right? He would go to all that trouble for one man to write out his detailed account of the gospel and use his writing skill and his interviewing skills. He would have interviewed eyewitnesses and so on and so forth to try to win one man to Christ. I tell you, what lengths should we be willing to go to to win somebody to Christ? I mean, I think probably when he wrote down the Gospel of Luke, he didn't know that he was writing inspired scripture. He didn't know that God would use this and put this into the Bible. But later on, the Lord did. And when he wrote his history after preparing, writing that gospel and everything like that, when he was writing this, he was writing it to, Oh, Theophilus, oh, this man that I care about, I want you to know what happened, and I want you to be a follower of Jesus too. Maybe there's somebody in our lives that we know of that they don't live in this zip code, but we could write them a letter. You know, the old-fashioned snail mail, mail is what they call it. The old-fashioned snail mail. Um, a lot of times putting, you know, the, these little tracks, putting them into, you know, your uh, utility bills, putting that into an envelope with your utility bill, or when you've got to send something off to some, maybe to the IRS or something like that. Uh, you can use the other ones, the Fellowship Track League, and they're thinner. They might not get turned around. But um, I think about that. I think, who could I write after I heard that? Who could I write and just witness to them? So uh, he went to all that trouble to do that. Now he says, this former treatise, referring to the Gospel of Luke, have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. And then he says, now I'm going to write to you this history of the church, the next treatise. But Luke said here of Jesus, all that he began to do and to teach. In Luke's gospel, Jesus began to do and to teach. And in Luke's history, he continues throughout the church age and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to do and to teach. And that's what we're, what we're all about. That's what we're up to here, is doing and teaching. Now compare Christ's manner, who was one who would, he would say and then he would do. He wasn't guilty of what we're guilty of so many times, you know, do as I say, not as I do. No, what Jesus said he would do. But compare his ministry with Matthew 23 
and verse 3 and compare his ministry to the ministry of the Pharisees and of the scribes. They were like so many today who would say, do as I say and not as I do. Uh, in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 3 says here, well, we'll just go ahead and go up to verse 1. Matthew 23 and verse 1. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you, observe. You see what he's saying? He's saying, whatever they tell you to do, do it. That observe and do. But do not do after their works, for they say and do not. There's Jesus telling on them, and he knows all things. He knows these religious teachers talk out of both sides of their mouths, and they'll tell you to do something, and they're not even doing it. But, he said, they're sitting in Moses' seat, and Jesus instituted, you know, Moses' writings in the Old Testament law and that system. And so Jesus said, that's my system. I instituted that, and you follow that. They're sitting in Moses' seat. Their authority is not in their compliance with the doctrine. Their authority is in the, the word of God that they're teaching. So even if you have a bad teacher, you know, we're still responsible to do what they tell us. For example, if a child says, well, my parent says honor your father and your mother and so on and so forth and to obey me is to obey God and and all of that's right but then I see you know I see some hypocrisy or I see some things in their life and and uh, so I'm going to use that as an excuse to rebel against my parents I don't think that's going to fly at the judgment no they sit in authority the authority that God gave to parents and the same thing goes for you know maybe you've been in a church where you had a, a pastor or maybe a priest or a rabbi, or an imam, you know, depending on who's listening, who was found out and, and guilty of some terrible, heinous thing, you know. When we, when we went to those classes, the subject for our classes uh, were, uh, the subject was child sex abuse, <clears throat> which was a terrible thing to sit and listen to for six hours. It was all about sex abuse in children, pedestry. And uh, that man who was teaching, he was a man who worked at a corporate level for children's services. So he wasn't in the trenches anymore. He's working up with a bunch of men in business suits and talking about numbers and figures and so on and so forth. But they talk about uh, the statistics of those things that happen. And he says that, you know, it doesn't matter whether you are a priest or a rabbi or a pastor of a Protestant church, or an imam of the Muslims, uh, whether you're a school teacher, a babysitter, you know, whether you're a bus driver for public school system, your your uncle so and so, your mom's latest boyfriend. He said, you just go right on down the line. Kids are abused by authority figures in their lives, and it leaves them feeling disillusioned, right? It leaves them feeling, I can't trust anybody. I thought I was supposed to be able to trust that person. I can't trust anybody, you know? And they say that uh, 
I'll just chase this rabbit trail for a second. You wouldn't believe the numbers of children that are abused. Um, one in four, one in four girls will be sexually abused in adolescence. And one in seven boys, one in seven boys. Most of the perpetrators are men. Most of them are men. But uh, sitting there with us in that class, the, the lady right behind me said she was sexually abused when she was younger, and she was in the foster system. And uh, she was uh, adopted later on, and that's why she had the burden to do what she was doing. But you see, those are people in authority positions, but it doesn't give us the right to just give up on everything, you know, and give up on uh, the authority in our lives, because ultimately it can trace back to the authority of God and Jesus Christ. But Jesus says here, they sit in Moses' seat, so whatever they bid you do. So if you've had a, you know, if somebody has had a bad experience with the church and they say, oh, there's a bunch of hypocrites in the church, or I was hurt by a pastor, he, he was, he acted like he was a holy man, and then he let the whole church down, I don't go to church anymore, take him right here, and say, based on this, you don't have the right or the authority to disobey God's commandments when he tells you to assemble together with believers. But look what he says, he says, they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. That wasn't Jesus. He wasn't one of those who says and then doesn't do what he says. You know what you have here? Jesus began both to do and to teach. He had doctrine and then he had duty. And that's the Christian faith. There's belief and behavior. And what a man does with his life, the way that he behaves, it, it reveals what he truly believes. For example, if you truly believed that people die and go to one of two places, heaven or hell, you would do something about trying to pull people out of the fires of hell, pluck them as brands from the burning, pull them out of the mouth of the lion. You would try to do something. If you really believed... In hell, we have to ask ourselves, do I really believe this? I really believe this stuff? Because if I really believed that uh, the Lord instituted the church and gave commandments unto his apostles and to us, then I would obey the commandment in Hebrews 10.25 that tells me not to forsake the assembling of myself together. You have to ask yourself, do you really believe what the Bible says? You know, And we find a lot of people... After the COVID and the lockdowns and everything like that, a lot of people scattered. A lot of them didn't come back. Or some of them scattered and went to churches that teach uh, things from the Bible or neglect things from the Bible and teach, uh, by their practice, teach errors and have gone to churches that are apostate churches, some of them. Or their organizations are apostate. And by their, by their attendance... They are voting with their feet that they're for liberalism and, uh, and perversion. In God's churches, what used to be God's churches now are promoting and supporting perversions of the truth. So you see, people by their feet will show you what they really believe. Do you really believe that the Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice? If a person really believes in the power of prayer, you know what they'll do? pray. Spend real time praying because they believe that prayer changes things. You see, 
you, you show me what a man does, and I'll show you what he truly believes. So, as we look at this, what Jesus both began to do and to teach, as we study the book of Acts together, let's, let's say this at the beginning. Say, Lord, would you help me to teach by my life sound doctrine? Would you help me to do that? Because somebody's looking at you, somebody's following you, and you're teaching somebody with your hands. You're teaching somebody with your feet. You're teaching somebody with your eyes. So verse 2, Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. So the book of Acts, it starts really with the ascension of Christ. That's what he's referring to. Until the day in which he was taken up. You see? You know, um, we preach the gospel that Christ died for our sins. And then what? He was buried, right? And then what happened? He was, yeah, resurrected. He rose again. That's the big one. We're witnesses of his resurrection. That is the gospel. Yep. But we cannot forget his ascension. Oftentimes, and I'm guilty of it, I forget to preach and to teach the ascension. There's, there's theological... No, no. Exactly. That is what, that's the key right there. And that's what it's really getting down to. The nitty-gritty of it is we have to preach an ascended Lord. You ever seen somebody walk around with a cross and Jesus is hanging on that cross? Um, you know, you don't want to make people feel bad when they're trying to show their faith. But really, you shouldn't have a cross with a Christ on it. He's not there. And that's not the picture that we need to be presenting of Jesus He is ascended on the right hand of his father. And there's a lot to that, more than we'll go into here. But he speaks of when he was taken up. Now, how is he taken up? We'll look at it. But after that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. All right. Does anyone know what the word apostle means? These are the Lord's apostles. The word apostle means a sent one. A sent one. And so Jesus spent his three-and-a-half-year ministry investing himself into 12 men. And then he said to these 12 men, I'm going to send you out. And now there were other apostles, okay? They're not the only ones. There were other apostles. One of them was a devil. He was replaced. But he, he invested his life into these 12 men, and three of them were closer to him than the other ones. And then he said to you, I'm going to send you out. And you're going to teach, you're going to make disciples, and so on and so forth. And so he gave commandments to them, and he says, I want you to give these commandments. And you can imagine if you were one of the ones sitting and listening to Peter, you know, or listening to John, this is one of those men who actually walked with the Lord, you know. And Luke would have sat down to uh, interview these men and and try to get the, the, the real story the details on everything that happened and the commandments and everything. And John, you know, the Apostle John, they say that every time he walked into a meeting where Christians were gathering, this is uh, tradition and history, but they say he would sit down and if he never said anything else in the meeting, he would make sure to say, little children love one another. But by back of that statement, you know, this is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He spent three and a half years with Jesus, and that's what makes him say that. And I want to say that to the kids that are in our home. 
I, and I do. I've started doing it. I just sit them down, and I get real close to them, and I say, be kind. Yep. And, and I say to the kids, be kind. Be nice to each other. Love one another. I'm trying to teach them to do that. There's just no excuse for uh, being mean to people, not having grace with people, and so on and so forth. But he says, I've given these commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. So he chose them for this. And if you're saved, you are chosen. And you have a very special job. Sure, you might not have walked with Jesus Christ, but you are chosen to be a witness of his resurrection and to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to live by his commandments and to teach them to others. And verse 3, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining unto the kingdom of God. So now Luke is establishing the foundation of the gospel and the, the reliability of his testimony and of his writings. He says that Jesus, after his resurrection, he shewed himself alive, we would say he showed himself, alive, after his passion, the passion, you see that's a biblical word, the passion, that's referring to his death for sinners, and uh, his passion by many infallible proofs. Now, if you don't have a King James Bible, <clears throat> you have an unfortunate mistranslation. They'll say things in this verse, instead of infallible, They'll take the word infallible out, and they'll put something in there like convincing proofs, which is not the same thing, or many proofs, and that's an unfortunate translation. They've been substituted in place of infallible proofs, and do you know where that corruption comes from? It comes from the Catholic Douay-Rheims Bible of 1582. That's where that comes from. It's like I've been saying, you got two Bibles, and that's good English, right? You got two Bibles. You got God's book and all the ones that came before it, and you got the devil's book. You have two Bibles. You don't have 250 plus translations <coughs> of the Bible in the English language. You have two. And every other Bible comes from a different stream, and you know where that stream leads right back to? That dirty stream leads right back to Rome, to the Roman Catholic apostate anti-Christian church. You have the book of the Reformation, which is what I uphold, and it says infallible proofs. You say, what's the big deal? Well, when Plato, when Aristotle, when Lysias used the Greek word that's translated infallible proofs, when they used it, they used it for a convincing, certain, demonstrative proof, but a certain proof. Something that can be convincing, like the propaganda going on about the purpose of the, uh, or, or the, uh, the virus and uh, the jab in the arm and that kind of stuff, they make convincing arguments, right, on both sides, on both sides. 
And I don't know, I'm not so sure that there aren't multiple sides. And they're convincing. But only one of them's true. You can be convinced by something and it not be true. Right? And I, I was talking to my, uh, my mom and, and my stepdad, and we had a nice meal together. And uh, my stories always involve food. But, yeah, I'm Baptist. That's right. And you know what they said to me? They said, we don't even know what to believe anymore. And they're not dummies. You know, they, they like the news, but they stopped watching the news. They said, I don't even know what to believe. The underground, so-called uh, religious right, underground Internet uh, news network, uh, there's things that they found in there that weren't right, and it wasn't right. And, um, and they said, I just, who knows who's telling the truth anymore? And that's, that's it right there. Yes. Yeah, and they probably said a justifiable lie or something like that. So, so they, yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you, here's a reason to be thankful for the millennials, among many other reasons. Uh, they got this fact-checking thing and the internet, you know, and they built stuff where people are connected and it's harder to cover up things, isn't it? Before it comes out. And you have independent news uh, papers now, the Epic Times, and that are that you can more reliable and get you the stuff that nobody else will tell you. But listen, let God be true and every man a liar. I know when God says it, it's true and it's not going to change. God's history book, the book of Acts, is not going to change. The history book that they teach in public school, it's changed since I've been in there and since you've been in there. So I'm saying this to to, to, to say that it's not convincing proofs. It's not many proofs. There are many proofs for the lie of evolution. But it's not true. But what you have for the resurrection is you have something that can be demonstrated and something that is certain beyond any shadow of a doubt. It is infallible. The word infallible means without error, without doubt, Amen. certain. I have a Bible, and I believe in the infallibility of the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. I believe that the Bible, that this book is perfect, without error. So I believe in the infallibility of the Scriptures. And I believe in the infallibility of the resurrection of Jesus. It's absolutely true, without error, and without deception. So he says, many infallible proofs being seen of them 40 days. That's pretty good. Jesus went... From his resurrection, 40 days of his post-resurrection ministry. Walking around, meeting with his disciples, teaching them things, doing miracles, proving to them that he is the resurrected Christ, that he has a flesh and bone body, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Let's stop there for just a second back up and review the book of acts it spans a period of about 40 years now different study bibles will say different things 38 years some even say as little as 30 years let's just make it simple about 40 years okay 40 years the book of acts covers that period of history do you know what that means by the time you get to the book of uh acts chapter 28 you are getting real close to 70 A.D. 
you're at about 63 A.D. there at the end of the book of Acts. You know what happens in 70 A.D.? Anybody remember what happens? Jerusalem is sacked. Titus, the Roman uh, governor and general, comes in there and Jerusalem is destroyed. That's the end of the temple worship system. That's the end of the Levitical priesthood, all that. So the book of Acts is about 40 years of history, and the post-resurrection ministry of Jesus Christ lasts 40 days. 40 days from the resurrection to the ascension. Now he says, he taught things pertaining to the kingdom of God. We need to study that, the kingdom of God. So when we're studying in Sunday school, we study the Bible the way the Bible tells us to, making right divisions. And the Bible tells us to compare Scripture with Scripture. If you would, look with me at, let's see, I think it's 1 Corinthians. Now, I didn't put this one down on my paper. But let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, yeah. Chapter 2 and verse 13. The Bible also tells us when we study it, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. When we study it, to compare Scripture with Scripture. And that's the only way to learn the Bible. When a person is preaching, say even preaching through books of the Bible, I know that Delbert was fond of doing that in just about every service. He would just go through books of the Bible and skim the book and kind of do a surface-level teaching of it, kind of teach preaching. Uh, That's good. That's okay for preaching, but not for Bible study, not for Sunday school. You can't do that. Uh, That would be to disobey the way the Bible says to actually study it, and you won't really get it. You won't be convinced by the Scriptures. Again, I don't want you to be convinced by me, and I could give you many convincing proofs but it wouldn't be infallible. But if I give you Scripture Scripture, well, then you're convinced with certainty by the Scriptures themselves. So 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, Paul writes here, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. And he says these things... We've been speaking about them. In verse 13, we speak, we use words. Not in words which man's wisdom teacheth. Pause there for just a second. Philosophy has done a lot of damage to Christian theology. Not in words which man's wisdom teacheth. The world's philosophy will lead you down the wrong path and lead you to error in the scriptures. Uh, It is good to use reason. Reason is a good thing. Good common horse sense, help you out in Bible study. Watch out for those that talk about philosophy. Now back to it, the words. How do we teach about these things? We speak words, but we get words which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Now hold on just a second there. Where do we find these words that the Holy Ghost teaches? Do we go down to these uh, word of faith churches and wait for somebody to get up and say, The Lord told me this. The Lord told me that. You ought to sit down, shut your mouth. The Lord didn't tell you that. I'm, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Now, the Lord has spoken to my heart and told me, stay put. But he didn't say, 
John, you know, he didn't say, write this down now, like he did to Jeremiah, okay? He didn't say that. John, write this down like he did to Moses. He just said, spoke to my heart and just gave me this inner prompting, and I know, supposed to stay put, okay? So he speaks to our hearts through the word, but how does the Holy Ghost teach us, and where do these words come from? Well, we all know, right? The Bible, the Bible. There aren't any more inspired books of the Bible. There's no lost books, okay, that you got them all right here. Words from the Holy Ghost that God teaches, comparing, how do, we, how do we learn these things? How do we teach them? Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now, in the context, what do you think those spiritual things are? Words. Words, you compare spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. He can't know them, the words, because they're spiritually discerned. He can't know the words. He can't know the doctrines. Because you need the Holy Spirit to help you to understand the teaching that Jesus gave to his apostles to give to the church. You need the Holy Spirit. So you compare spiritual things with spiritual. You want a cross-reference to that? Jesus said, the words which I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. He gave us spiritual words, and we compare Scripture with Scripture. Martin Luther said that, Scripture with Scripture. Compare spiritual things with spiritual. The Bible defines itself in its own terms, and it will teach you. Now, if you learn to do that with your Bible, if you just read your Bible every year, guess what happens? The Bible becomes more and more familiar to you. Somebody said, I read through my Bible, preacher. Good, do it again. Because the more you read through your Bible, the more you start to see, now hold on, hey, there's something that I read in the book of Numbers that is connected to something that I've read in Paul's writings. And the two of them, they teach me something about that doctrine. And all down through the years, if you have like a Cambridge Bible, I don't have a a Bible, a standard Bible with standard references in it. But if you have like a, just your standard Bible with references in the center column, those references were put down there over the course of years, proven to be reliable over many Bible teachers searching the scriptures and comparing scripture to scripture. And therefore, those references were put in there. And for the most part, they're really reliable. Sometimes there's one that, that is not a correct cross-reference. But uh, that's how you study the Bible. People figured that out. That's why they put the cross-references in the center margin or sometimes on the outside margin. So when we study the Bible, I said all that to say this. When you come to Sunday school, you know, lick your fingers, get ready to turn some pages, um, put some, put some uh, cream on your hands. What do you call that? Anti, uh, anti uh, what do you call it when your fingers start to hurt like mine are now? Anti-inflammatory cream on your hands. <laughs> get ready. Yes, get ready to study the scriptures. What's it called? Voltarian. Voltarian. There you go. Amen. And uh, so let's, let's do that when we get together and study the Bible. Now, let's do that on just a couple of references. Look at Matthew 6. I noticed in listening to that Les Feldick, he's constantly taking them from one scripture to another. You know why? Um, people love to watch that Bible study program because he's learned that's the only way you can teach people the Bible. 
And you know what it does? It takes the authority away from me, and it gives the authority where it rightly belongs, the Bible. Matthew 6, 31, the kingdom of God, that's the subject we're looking at, the kingdom of God. Well, the Bible will define it. If you keep searching the scriptures, you'll find that the Bible defines its own terms. Matthew 6, verse 31, therefore, Jesus says, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed, for all these things Do the Gentiles seek? For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, did you notice there was a comparison there between the natural, everyday things of food and drink and clothing? And he says, but on the flip side, seek something that's different than that first. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not physical. It's spiritual. Look at uh, Acts chapter 20. Look at Acts chapter 20. So it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. It's not meat and drink. Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. I've been playing guitar ever since I was 11, and I've already got a little bit of carpal tunnel and my knuckles, I have pain in my knuckles and things like that, and it's all worth it because that's my, that's my escape. That's my hobby, and it calms me down. It always has been an escape for me, kind of like a book is for other people. Acts chapter 20 and verse number 24, but none of these things moved me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, he says, shall see my face no more. So Paul said, I went preaching the kingdom of God. It's what he preached. And you'll see my face no more. One more now. Romans. So you got Acts and then you have Romans. Romans chapter 14. So Jesus preached it. Paul preached it. And you'll find if you search kingdom of God in your concordance or an online search or something like that, you'll find Paul preaching the kingdom of God all over the place. So it ought to be a main theme. If you come to church, and I'm again, I think I'm guilty of not emphasizing the things that the Bible emphasizes. If you come to church, you ought to hear about the kingdom of God. But it's spiritual. Romans 14, 17. It's not physical. 